I was on the phone speaking to a nice gentleman from the Federal Bureau of Economic Development. It sounds really official, doesn't it? Be surprised that a person from the Federal Bureau of Economic Development would even take my call, but he did. But then he caught me off guard. He laughed. He laughed loud and he laughed hard. I mean, it was like, <laughs> and then so I laughed too, and I was like, <laughs> and we were just laughing on the phone. Only the guy from the Bureau for Economic Development was laughing for a completely different reason than what I was laughing for. See, he was laughing because he doesn't know who my God is. And I was laughing because I do. So what he said to me right before he laughed is that, yes, Mr. Pastor Reverend Grider, the uh, document that was given to you at the city council meeting is valid and is binding. Go ahead and throw that up on the screen there, Mr. Hay. And this was the clause that he was referencing. It says, at no time. Shall the released land, that's this property that you're on right now, be used for inherently religious activities prohibited by applicable federal law? He said, yes, Reverend Grider. They just kept calling me Reverend Grider. Yes, Reverend Grider, the, uh, the, the, the clause in this covenant is binding. And no, you absolutely, positively cannot ever have a church service on that property See, this covenant states that this is actually federal land and it will be considered federal land regardless of who actually owns it because of the money that was given by the organization that I represent. A covenant like this has never been broken in the history of the United States of America. These are binding. I've had so many of these come through my office, and they have never been altered. They've never been broken, and they actually go with the real property. Like, even if you tear the building down, you cannot build a new building on that property that we owned, by the way. You cannot build a new building on that property and have a church service in there. It goes with the actual property. It goes with the ground. So that cannot be altered. And so I said, that's okay, man. I said, my God moves mountains. And he laughed. He laughed out loud. To where my wife heard him laughing. I was on the phone and she heard him laughing. And I was like, he's laughing. She was like, and so then I started laughing too. <laughs> you see, he didn't understand that this church was birthed from a mess anyway. So he didn't understand that the enemy's been trying to destroy this ministry since the day that it was born. So he didn't understand that God had already moved mountains out of the way so that we could proclaim the name of Jesus up in this place. So he didn't realize that he was talking to somebody, not that that does this for a living. He didn't realize that he was talking to somebody that is a living, breathing, walking miracle of the grace of the living God that he reached down into darkness and pulled my silly self out of sin and set me free and moved mountains in my life to even allow me to be able to do this. He didn't understand that I've seen the miracles of God and I know who he is. So he was laughing because he doesn't know my God. And all I could do was laugh because I know who my God is. And so we prayed harder than we had ever prayed before. 
We fasted more than we had ever fasted before. We praised louder than we had ever praised before. We trusted God in ways that we had never trusted God before. And so the next conversation that I had with a federal individual was not with somebody from the Federal Bureau of Economic Development. Uh, the next conversation I had was with a United States congressman. Can you say amen? Not a state legislator. No, with a United States congressman. And he didn't laugh. He didn't laugh. You know why? Because this man knows who God is. Because this man that I talked to understands the power of the God that we serve. And even though the federal government thinks that it's sovereign, I got news for you there, feds. Uh, you don't hold a candle to the power of the living God. Can somebody just say amen and give God some praise for that? You want some evidence of that fact? Look where you're sitting. We'll never, never, at no time, will this property that you're sitting in be used for an inherently religious service. Would you guys say that, well, they may not be religious. <laughs> but I'll tell you what we do do. We do love God and love people. We show up here twice on Sunday. We show up here on Friday nights. We show up here for 24 hours around the clock one time in the summer. We show up here all the time and we worship Jesus Christ unashamed in spirit and in truth. And we read the word of God and we preach it unabridged and exactly as it appears in there. Not caring what anybody says about it because my God moves mountains. Can you say amen? amen. You want evidence? Look around. Man made this covenant and said that it could never be broken. Guess what? The blood of Christ destroyed it and replaced it. He tore it down. Stay with me. This is going to be important soon. He tore down this covenant made by men, and he raised up a new one and brought it to life, signed in his blood that can't never be broken. They laughed at Noah when he built the ark. They laughed and Moses, when he showed up demanding that the people be let go, they laughed at Nehemiah when he went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. They laughed at Paul when he stood up in the Areopagus. They laughed at Paul when he went before the Roman courts. They laughed at Paul when he showed up at the temple. They laughed in the face of Jesus Christ. Sixteen times in Scripture, sixteen times, it says that they laughed at Jesus that they scorned him, that they mocked him 16 times in Scripture. They laughed at him. You know why? Because they didn't believe he could do the things that he said he could do. They didn't believe that he was who he said that he was. But you know what? I like that old saying that says, he who laughs last laughs longest, right? You know who gets the last laugh in all this? Let me give you a clue. <laughs> and he's going to keep laughing for all of eternity. 
He's going to keep laughing. Let me, let me read some scripture to you. We'll stand for the reading of the scripture we're going to study in a minute. But let me read just a real quick passage to you. It's in the second Psalm. It's in Psalm 2. The Bible says this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains. Throw their ropes off of us. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And he's going to keep laughing. Because all the shady schemes that the enemy can come up with, all the shady schemes that people can come up with, they're funny to the Lord. Would you guys pray with me this morning? God, we just come before you praising your holy name. We come before you knowing that you are exactly who you say you are and you'll do exactly what you say you're going to do. And God, we trust in that and we, we praise you for that, God. And I thank you, Jesus, for laying your life down for us. I thank you for tearing this temple down raising it up, bringing it to life, awakening it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you guys stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? I'm in the book of John in chapter 2. You know, Jesus said a lot of crazy things in his ministry, in his life on earth. I mean, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He said, I'm going to come back and set all this stuff straight. But you know what to the Jews, the craziest thing that he ever said was? It's here in John chapter 2. The craziest thing that Jesus ever said to the Jewish people. And right before he said this, he actually went through and, and flipped over the tables. You guys are familiar with that scripture, right? He went and flipped the tables over of the money changers. Their coins went scattering all across the floor. He made a whip of cores, and he chased all the animals out and let a little bit of that righteous anger go. And once he cleansed the house, some of the leaders confronted him to talk about what he had just done. And that's where we pick up in verse 17. And his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, and they believed the statement that Jesus had made. Let me ask you, do you believe the scriptures today? Do you? Do you believe the statements that Jesus has made today? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says that he is? Do you believe that he will do what he claimed that he's going to do? We'll give him some praise this morning then and have a seat. This was the biggest claim that Jesus ever made. That if they tore the temple down, that he'd raise it up in three days. See, Jesus was what they called a tecton. We, we, we say he was a carpenter, but he, he was more like a contractor, right? Like Mr. Beckley here. He was like a contractor, and they knew who he was. I mean, he'd been teaching at the temple since he was 12 years old. They knew who he was. And so when he said that he was going to raise this temple up in three days, they probably thought that he was saying that he was going to fix it. Tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it. 
But the word that Jesus used was not build. In, in, I should use a different translation. Some of the translations say that the, the Pharisees said to him, if, if we tear this down and you're saying you'll rebuild it in three days, and they're using a different word than what Jesus used. See, in the Greek, Jesus didn't say he'd rebuild it. He said, I'll raise it. He said, I'll raise it. If you look it up in the Greek lexicon, you'll see that the word that he used there doesn't mean build. It means awaken. It doesn't mean build. It means bring to life. What he's saying is, if you destroy this temple, I'll bring it to life in three days. And yeah, he was talking about his body, but he was also talking about the temple that they had used for worship there. See, this was the biggest statement that Jesus had ever made. He was saying... This temple that is the apex of your existence, this temple that represents your entire country, that represents your, your status as the chosen people of God, it means nothing. It means nothing. You tear it down, I'll rebuild, I'll, I'll raise it. You destroy it, I'll, I'll awaken it. You kill it, I'll bring it to life. It's imperfect. It's broken. I'll fix it. I'll fix it. As a matter of fact, what he was really alluding to is that he would replace it. I'll replace the temple. And this must have been really shocking for the Jews to hear. I mean, this temple, that's the apex of their entire civilization. And it didn't just take them 46 years to build it. It took their entire existence ever since Abraham was, was, was changed from Abram and became the father of Israel. This had been their goal was to have the temple where the presence of God could dwell and they finally had it and then here comes this nobody carpenter from Galilee saying that he's going to awaken it because it must be dead inside and they laughed and they laughed how many times has the world done that to you I've been saved by the grace of God <laughs> God has changed my life Sure he has, buddy. I don't live like that anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm getting right with God. I've been in church. <laughs> I don't do those things anymore. I can't go those places with you anymore. I can't live like that anymore. I belong to God. <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> I can't go with you. I'm going to be serving in church that day. <laughs> I can't buy those things. i got to pay my tithes at church. <laughs> And trust me, if they didn't laugh in your face, then they waited till you left and got in a little group and laughed about you. But people laughed right in my face. I said, no, you don't understand. I, I've been saved by grace. And they were like, yeah, sure, buddy. And I said, no, really, I, I've, been called, I've been called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, we're going to start a brand new church. <laughs> sure you are. The enemy laughs. The scoffers that you meet in your life, they laugh. You know who else laughs? God laughs. Because see, the enemy thought he was going to destroy you, and God laughs. 
and the addiction thought it was going to keep its hold on you, and God laughs, and the cancer thought it was going to kill you, and God laughs, and the enemy thought the chains were going to get so tight around you that you wouldn't be able to breathe, and you'd never be able to escape, and God laughs, and the darkness thought it was going to be able to keep you trapped down there and never let you go, and God laughs, and all the rubble that was strewn around in your life and was crushing you thought it was going to be able to lay on top of you, and God laughs because he knows better, because he knows better. Because he knows who he is and he knows who we can become in uh, him. God laughs. And so Jesus is standing there amongst these people and he says, you tear this whole temple down, destroy it, crush it to dust, and I'll raise it up in three days. And they laughed. And they laughed. And I think he probably laughed a little bit too on the inside. If you don't think so, read the Gospels again understanding who this is that you're talking about, man. It's like we talked about first service. He's, he, we're created in his likeness, in his image. That means everything that we have is perfected in him. Everything that we are is perfected in him, including humor. And so you have to think while these people are scoffing at him and laughing at him on the inside, he's like, they don't know what's going to happen. They have no idea what I'm about to do. See, they thought they needed the temple to get to God. They thought they needed the temple to get to God. They thought that the temple was the only way to get to God. And how can this guy, how can this one man, how can this nobody carpenter, this nobody contractor from from across the tracks in Nazareth, how in the world can this guy do anything? I, I mean, the temple... It's everything to our society. I mean, so you're saying that this guy is, is going to tear down the altar of sacrifice? The only way that we can be made right? The only way that we can be, can we be, can be redeemed to God? And he's going to tear it down? To where, and he's going to raise it up again? And yet Jesus in Mark 10 said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life, lay down my life for many. And in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4 and 5, it talks about how the perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed. And they laughed when he, when he made them, tried to make them understand that he was going to replace the temple. They laughed. And yet he was the perfect sacrifice, just like he said He said, I've come to lay my life down so that I can take it up again. It's going to be my blood. This cup that that, that he talked about the last supper, this is my blood that's going to be poured out. And Jesus Christ replaced the altar of sacrifice so that we don't have to bring bulls and oxes and lambs and doves to the temple anymore. We don't have to rely on this imperfect sacrifice of man We can rely on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? And so the the, the next thing that you would see if you walked into the temple in its its functioning days would be what they call the brazen sea, the the, the washing laver, to where the, the priests would have to ceremonially wash themselves before they could continue in to the rest of the temple. 
And, and a lot of times it would be that they would wash the blood off them, but also they would wash themselves ceremoniously to make sure that they were clean because it's an unclean world out there. And before you can connect with God, you have to be made clean. In the Old Testament, they had to be ceremoniously washed. They had to be ceremoniously washed because anything that you touched out there made you unclean. But see, Jesus in John chapter 7 said, I'm like the spring of living water. And if you put your faith in me, then a spring of water will come from deep within you. That is the power of the Holy Spirit that will come from you. You see, all of a sudden in Christ, it's not what's touched becomes unclean. Man, if you touched by Jesus Christ, then what was unclean becomes clean. Can you say amen? And so in Christ, by his power, the, the, the brazen sea, the washing labor that's described in 1 Kings chapter 7 is not needed anymore. See, in Jesus it's replaced because if we touch him, all of a sudden we are made clean. See, he that knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We're sanctified not by the ceremoniously washing of the waters, but by the spiritual washing of his blood. And, and, and as you continue into the temple... As you continue into the temple from there, you would have to pass through the gate. And the people he was saying this to were probably thinking, you know, these, these bronze pillars, they were actually covered in bronze. These bronze pillars could never be brought down. And there's no way that this guy could ever rebuild these pillars. And to get into the presence of God, you have to walk through the gate. You have to walk through the gate to get into the presence of God. But in John chapter 10, Jesus said... I am the gate. I'm the gate. I'm the gate to get into the presence of God. I'm the gate to get into heaven. I'm the gate that can take you closer to the Lord than you could have ever imagined being. And so in that moment, Jesus replaced what was the gate. Jesus replaced what was the only way to get to God. And they laughed, but he knew. He knew and, and, and some people say that, that and, and, and it's true that, that he was saying that he was the gate because the shepherd sits in the, in the gate to keep the sheep in and the goats out and whatever. But I have to think that he was referring also to the temple. He was always referring to the temple because he came to bring the temple to life. He came to awaken the temple. He came to raise the temple from the dead. And then once you make it into the temple... And you come through the gate and you open the doors. The first thing that you would see would be the menorah. There are actually ten of them in Solomon's temple, five on each side. And you can read about that in 1 Kings. A lot of stuff comes from 1 Kings, except some of it comes from the end of Exodus. But this is all straight from Scripture. You would come and you would see the menorah. And the menorah, the, the lampstand, would be the only thing that illuminated the inside of the temple. See, all the light that they had to be able to worship God, to come into his presence, all the light that they had to be able to come into the presence of God was given off by the lampstand, was given off by the menorahs that were inside the temple. And, and, and it not only provided physical light for them to see, it was the representation of the illumination of God. See, the only place that you could be illuminated, truly illuminated, to understand the truth and the presence of God was inside the temple that was lit by the menorahs. But in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. 
And not anybody that goes into the temple where the menorah is, but anybody that follows me will never walk in darkness ever, ever, ever again. I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, man. He replaced the need for the lampstands. He replaced the need for the menorahs because in Christ there is light and there's no darkness in him at all. First John. Then if you continue into the temple, you would come to what they call the table of showbread. And the table of showbread would actually have 12 loaves of unleavened bread that would represent the 12 tribes of Israel and how God provided sustenance for them, uh, you know, in the wilderness with the manna and also throughout their lives. And the only ones that could eat from the bread, the table of showbread that was in the temple, would be the priests, the Levitical priests. And that was how they were sustained was with bread from the table of showbread that was inside the temple. And yet in John chapter 6... Jesus said, your ancestors ate manna that came down from heaven, and yet they died. But if you eat this bread, if you eat this bread, see, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven, not the manna that was on the ground. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And if you eat this bread that I have brought to you, then you will never, ever, ever die. Ever die. Because I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. And they laughed. But he knew. He knew. And in that, Jesus replaced the table of showbread. And then you come to the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was the place where true worship took place. I mean, this is where you could truly worship God. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, man, the incense that's burned represents the prayers and the praises of all God's people going up to heaven. And this was the place where the true worship took place. The Levitical priests would come in and they would burn incense before the Lord. And that's where true worship took place. Man, they would have to, you'd have to count on me and Brent and Jared to worship for you. Aren't you glad you don't have to do that? Because we would do a pretty pathetic job of it. We burn incense before the Lord because it brings a, a sweet-smelling savor to his nostrils and he breathes in our praises and he breathes in our prayers and he breathes in uh, just the, our, our love and our desire for him. But aren't you glad that we don't have to have somebody do that for us anymore? Because you see, Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter four, see, she asked him, she said, where does true worship take place? Because your people, the Jews, say that the only place that true worship takes place is in the temple at the altar of incense. And our people, the Samaritans, they say the only place you can truly worship God is on the mountain here. And, and which is it? And Jesus said, well, there's a time coming. Oh, wait. There's a time that's here now when true worship will take place neither in the temple nor on the mountain. But the Father is seeking those that would worship in spirit and in truth. And Jesus was saying, I am that spirit. 
and I am that truth. And real true worship only takes place in me. And all of a sudden, the altar of incense is replaced by Jesus Christ. Everything in the temple, everything from the altar of sacrifice when you first walk in, to the brazen sea, the labor that they would wash, and to the menorahs inside the temple, to, to the gates that, 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 that separated the holy place from the courtyards, all replaced by Christ from the table of showbread that brought sustenance to the world, replaced by Christ from the, the altar of incense where they worshiped, replaced by Christ, everything replaced by Christ. And that only leaves one thing, one thing, the most holy place, the holy of holies, separated from the outside world only by the veil only by a, a, a giant, really thick purple cloth that was specially created and woven for that specific purpose to guard everyone else from the presence of God. You see, no one got to go to touch God. See, that's the only place in all of the world that you could touch God. Once a year, the high priest of Israel, once a year, the high priest of Israel would go through a, a intense cleansing ceremony, would go through a, a just a crazy amount of preparation. He would have to prepare the outside of his body. He would have to prepare the inside of his spirit. He would have to prepare himself to be able to go into the presence of God on the day of atonement and on that day, he would take blood from the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the altar to make atonement for the sins of Israel for the entire year. One guy, one time a year, got to pass by the veil and go into the presence of God. And that's it. The only place you could touch God in all the world. And Jesus is standing here in the temple saying, I'm going to break all this stuff down, including where the presence of God is made manifest. And I'll raise it up again in three days. And they had to be going, this guy has lost his mind. If the priest went in there and wasn't prepared properly, bad things happen. You see, they actually tied a rope around his leg. And they put bells at the bottom of his robe. And they knew that if the bells stopped ringing, he was dead. And then they'd take the rope and pull him out because they sure weren't going in after him. I think I'd send my associate pastor in there. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And they would pull his dead body out. And then they'd have to wait till next year to try again to atone for the sins of Israel. Because the presence of God was that powerful. The presence of God was that strong. Nobody can go into the presence of God. Nobody can touch God and survive. And yet this guy's standing here saying that he's going to bring it to life, that he's going to awaken it, that he's going to raise the whole thing back up, even the Holy of Holies. That's crazy. Nobody can touch God. And yet in John chapter 14... In verse 6, Jesus Christ said, I am the way. I am the truth. 
I'm the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Not through the veil. Not through the gate. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And then Thomas, bless his heart, says, can't we just see the Father? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've encountered me, then you've encountered the Father. If you've experienced me, then you've experienced the Father. If you've touched me, come on. If you've touched me, you've touched me a few days later once again Thomas bless it now listen I'm not condemning Thomas many years later Thomas would come to the end of his life at the end of a spear And he'd be surrounded by guards on a mission trip that he was on. And they would say to him, denounce Christ. Tell tell our truth. Tell us that he was just a man. Denounce Christ and we'll let you go. And he said, he is my Savior. He is my King. He is God on earth. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And they skewered him at the end of a spear. And he went to his death. He went to his death proclaiming that Jesus is God. But in that moment, in, in, the, in the upper room, in that moment, in that moment, Thomas said, look, I'm not going to believe it until I touch the scars in his hands, until I touch the scar in his side. And then all of a sudden, he was there. Awkward. And he said, please, my brother, put your finger in my nail-scarred hands. Please, my brother, touch my side where the spear stabbed me. And I want you all to know that that day when Thomas put his hands put his finger in the nail-scarred hand of our Savior, that that day when Thomas put his hand in the, in the spear-scarred side of our Savior, that he was touching God. If you have experienced Jesus Christ in your life, then you have experienced the fullness of God. If you have been touched by Jesus in your heart, in your mind, in your life, then you have been touched by God. See, they thought that God only dwelled behind the veil. They thought that the dwelling place of God was behind the veil, and the only way that you could get to Him was through the veil. And yet as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Lima, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And then he said to Telestai, it is finished. And when he did, something that was unthinkable happened in the temple. The word of God says, that the veil was torn. Can you say amen? amen? That the veil was torn and no longer did we have to pass through the outer courtyard. No longer did we have to pass through the gates. No longer did we have to have the menorah to light our way to get into the presence of God because the presence of God wasn't going to be stopped by the veil but he was coming into all the world and he was coming into all of our lives because you see, in that moment, in that moment, the temple in Israel was replaced. The temple in Israel was replaced. And you know when Christ died on that cross, I bet the enemy laughed. <laughs> and God laughed. And God laughed. Because he knows. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly who he is. And he knows that everything that he says is truth. And he knows that there's nothing that's going to stop him from doing exactly what he says that he's going to do. They tried to destroy him, but Christ had the last laugh. The enemy's tried to destroy this ministry over and over and over. God has the last laugh. The enemy's tried to destroy your family, your marriage, over and over and over, but God has the last laugh. The enemy's tried to destroy your children, but God has the last laugh. The enemy's tried to destroy your, your walk with Christ. He's tried to destroy your worship. He's tried to destroy your, your mercy. He's tried to destroy your grace. He's tried to destroy everything about you. But God has the last laugh. And that laughter is going to go on for all of eternity because he knows who he is and he knows who you can be in him. In him. The temple's been replaced you know what stands where the temple was now? Who knows? An Islamic mosque stands there. An Islamic mosque stands in the place where the temple was. Why would God allow that mockery to take place? Why would God allow them to mock him by putting a mosque? Why would he allow them to laugh at him and to scorn him by putting a mosque where the temple used to be? Because that's not the temple. That's not the temple. God let them do that just to make his point. Let them laugh. That guy that I was talking to on the phone in, from Atlanta, from the Federal Bureau of Economic Development, he laughed because he doesn't know who my God is. I laughed because I do. Look where you're at right now. Because see, God always does what he says he's going to do. And God always is who he says that he is. 
And there ain't nothing that can ever change that. See, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. And he's always going to be exactly who he claims to be. And nothing is ever going to change that. And I don't care what a piece of paper says. And I don't care what any person on the face of this earth says. Because there's nothing that they can ever do to change who he is. There's nothing that, can, that they can do to ever change what he's going to do. Because he is everything that the temple represented. He is the presence of God. He is the manifest spirit of God. He is the light of God. He is the sustenance of God. He is the cleansing of God. He is the perfect sacrifice that redeemed us to God. He's the gate that we pass through to get to God. He is the ultimate worship of God. Man, Jesus Christ is everything. And he awakened the temple and he brought it to life and he raised it up in three days. Exactly like he said that he was going to do. Yeah, give him some praise because he deserves it today. Man, he deserves it. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Yes, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. It was all made real in the cross. But. I like it in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, didn't you know? Don't you know that you that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That you are the dwelling place of God. It, it's not some building and, and, and behind a curtain. It's not even Christ alone now. It's you. It, it's, it's you. I mean, if you would give your life to Christ... If you would surrender to his love and his power and his grace and his glory, then the dwelling place of God is you. It's, it's you. I mean, it's, it's all of us. Those of us that, that would put our faith in Christ. Those of us that would put our faith in the sacrifice that he made. Those of us that would put our faith in the living water that flows from him. Those of us that would see his light and then see everything else by his light. Those of us that would realize that he is the gate, that he is the door, that he is the way. those that would realize that he is the bread of life and draw all of our sustenance from him man must not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God we got to realize that he is the word of God to those of us that would realize that true worship true worship is in Christ alone 
to those of us that would realize that to touch Jesus is to touch the living God. If you don't know him today, if you, if you haven't encountered him, if you haven't truly experienced him, man, you don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You don't have to go through a bunch of ceremonies. You don't have to beat your head on this altar. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to talk a certain way. You don't, you don't have to obey made-up commandments of men. Everything you need. Man, everything that you need. was offered to you when he said it is finished. Temple worship was broken. He fixed it. The temple that was supposed to hold the manifest presence of God was dead inside. He brought it to life. Everyone was asleep. And Jesus awakened the presence of God on the earth.